Hey friends, and welcome to episode 156 of the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm assistant to Peter Lightheart, the president of Theopolis Institute. Theopolis Institute trains men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs will learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, Peter Lightheart and Alistair Roberts are going to discuss the text for the 11th Sunday after Pentecost. Those texts are passages from Exodus 16, Ephesians 4, and John 6. During the course of this discussion, they touch on such things as the symbolism and the numerology of the two springs of water and the 70 date palms. They'll talk about the bread and the quail, as well as Sabbath and manna. They'll talk about how the wilderness is turned into a garden. When they move into the New Testament passages, specifically John 6, they discuss what might be the seal that is put upon Jesus. And they wrap up in Ephesians 4 discussing how the church, as a building and body, grows. We really hope that you enjoy and are sharpened by this discussion over these texts. And as always, thank you so much for listening. Welcome to the Theopolis Podcast. This is Peter Lighthart, and I'm here with Brian Motes and also with, with Alistair Roberts, who's joining us from Durham. And today we're talking about the lectionary readings for the 11th Sunday after Pentecost. In 2018, that's August 5th, the upcoming Sunday. Uh, and the texts for this coming Sunday are Exodus 16, verses 2 through 15, a portion of the passage about manna, Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 16, and then John 6, verses 22 through 35. And uh, these are uh, the John 6 passage and the Old Testament passage match up uh, very neatly as type and fulfillment. Jesus explicitly refers to the manna in his discourse in John 6. But uh, be before we think about manna, I wanted to highlight the uh, place name that's mentioned at the beginning of chapter 16. Uh, they set out from Elim, which has been described in verse 27 of chapter 15. It's the first oasis that Israel comes to. It's described as a place where there are 12 springs of water and 70 date palms. And Israel camps there beside the water. So um, water in the wilderness, there's a garden area in the wilderness. That's uh, uh, Edenic allusion as part of the part of the symbolism of that scene. But then you have the more particular thing of the numerology, which is in this case is pretty obvious. We've talked about the Mark passages with the the uh, leftover loaves and uh, Jesus rebuking his disciples for not getting the point. Uh, that's a more difficult numerology. This one is really obvious uh, that you have t 12 springs of water that feed 70 date palms. 12 is the number, obviously, of Israel. And the 70 date palms are, uh, the number is the number of the nations as they're listed in Genesis 10. Throughout the Bible, uh, the number 70 becomes the number of the Gentile nations and uh, sometimes applied to Israel uh, as it is at the beginning of Exodus. There are 70 who come from Jacob's loins that go down into Egypt, but that's a that's a reference to the descendants of Jacob. But it's uh, has this overtone that Jacob's descendants are a kind of microcosm of the nations. So you have the scene uh, as Israel comes out of Egypt; they come to this oasis, and it portrays the ultimate calling of Israel. They're not even at Sinai yet, and yet the first place they camp symbolizes the vocation of Israel to be. Uh, the 12 springs of water that feed the, the life of the nations and make the nations like righteous men beside streams of water. So that's where Israel is coming from at the beginning of chapter 16 when they come into the uh, wilderness of sin and they begin to grumble 
about the lack of food. One of the things that Paul makes of this in 1 Corinthians 10, he, he refers to the grumbling and applies this to the Corinthians and uh, points out that Israel, the grumblers in Israel were destroyed by the destroyer. So uh, grumbling against the Lord in this setting, after they've been brought out of Egypt, after they've been delivered by plagues and by the Exodus, after they've seen the Lord save them in the Passover and then divide the waters so that they could pass through, after all that, uh, when they are hungry, they begin to complain against the Lord and wish they were back in Egypt. And Paul sees that as a, uh, as a serious uh, crime against God and one that leads to the Lord uh, killing thousands of them in the wilderness. The reference to the manna, one of the things that someone pointed out um, recently that I found quite striking was the bread is rained, whereas the quail come up. Do you have any thoughts on that particular connection? Well, it's, yeah, it's um, a heaven and earth. Uh, the bread is the bread of heaven. In the psalm, it's called the bread of angels. Israel eats the bread of angels in the wilderness. So it's, it's like the difference between groundwater and rainwater in the original creation. You have the separation of the waters above and the waters below. And the waters above are heavenly waters that feed the earth and supply it with life. And then the waters below are often threatening waters that uh, engulf Israel. They're the Gentiles that uh, flood Israel and, and destroy. Um, and I think that you'd have something similar with the, the source of these two foods. The quail do supply food. It's supplying a need. But uh, in, the, in the context, it ends up being a source of judgment and against Israel for their complaint. The source, the source of the complaint of that in that instance is the uh, kind of mixed multitude that's at the edge of the camp. Uh, so there may be a connection between the earthly source of the quail and the, uh, the fact that we're talking about uh, the margins of, of Israel. Did you have a thought on that yourself? Um, not particularly, although it is not beyond what you've already noted. But it's a curious feature I hadn't really picked up on before. Yeah. In some ways, it's it's surprising because talking about the rain from heaven, it's dew on the ground. It's described elsewhere. Mm -hmm. And the quail, you'd think, as birds, they'd descend upon the camp. But no, it's hmm. talking about yeah. coming up at evening and covering the camp. Yeah, I hadn't noticed that either. And that I'm, I think it, um, yeah, my first thought is uh, the contrast between uh, a heavenly gift coming down from above as opposed to something arising from the ground and uh, that kind of contrast. Deuteronomy 6 is, uh, of course, relevant to the whole passage uh, when the Lord gives a, an explanation for the gift of manna. He made Israel hunger in the wilderness and he gave them uh, manna, which uh, Israel didn't recognize. No one else had ever eaten bread like this before. Uh, and he gave it to them so that they would hunger and learn that they didn't depend on, they don't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So there's a, the uh, gift of manna is a kind of test of Israel's confidence in the Lord to be the provider of their food. The wilderness is not uh, a place where they can plant and uh, reap and they can, they can produce their own crops. Uh, in the wilderness, they're utterly dependent on the Lord, and that's the that's the lesson the Lord is teaching them, putting them through this ex experience of hunger so that they rely on the provision that the Lord has. 
And then beyond that, you also have them being taught the Sabbath before they're actually given the commandment. Right. Yeah, I've been, uh, we, we had a discussion about this, uh, Alistair. You and I had a discussion about the Sabbath uh, a couple of weeks ago. I've been working on a, a talk on the Sabbath that I'm going to give uh, on Friday down in Pensacola. I hadn't noticed before that uh, what you, the point you just made, that the Sabbath practice actually comes into play first in relation to the manna. Um, we, we have a tradition of Reformed theologians saying that the Sabbath is a creation ordinance, that it's practiced all the way back to Adam, and then it's reiterated at uh, Sinai. And there's there's some ground you could see why that, why that argument would be made, because the the Sabbath command in Exodus 20 is grounded in the rationale for the Sabbath command is the, the Lord's own rest after the creation. But the only the first time we actually see the practice of Sabbath keeping is in relation to the manna. And the first time it's explicitly commanded is at Sinai. And then it's repeated a number of times in Exodus, which I, I think indicates that the Sabbath command is actually part of Israel's glorification, their elevation to a higher standing uh, that uh, Adam was created in order to share Sabbath with the Lord. He's supposed to enter into the Lord's rest and enter into the Lord's enthronement. Uh, the Sabbath is a day of judgment. The, uh, humanity is going to share in God's judgments. But um, Adam failed to come to that point. He was cast out of the garden. He's excluded from Sabbath. And through the Old Testament, there's this gradual introduction of Sabbath into the life of Israel. They don't fully enjoy Sabbath the way Jesus does now, the way we do in Christ. Uh, they don't enjoy the fullness of Sabbath, but uh, the Sabbath command is introduced here at in the Mosaic Covenant, and it's part of the privilege of Israel to, to keep Sabbath. But yeah, it's, um, it's, it's first brought up in, the, in relation to the bread uh, that, or the manna that comes from heaven. Also the fact that God prepares, provides food for them very directly here, which Apart from Eden, it, it would seem to um, bring our minds back to Eden where food is more immediately provided by God. There's not the same need to labor as there would be after the fall. Um, in Eden, you just gather fruit, and here they're given food to gather. Yeah, and the, I think the, the irony of the, of the setting is important in, in that connection. You expect to be able to gather fruit in a garden and just... Uh, immediately as it's as it comes to you when you're in the wilderness you don't expect to be gathering food in this kind of abundance and so then yeah the it's part of the uh, motif of the lord turning the the wilderness into a pool of water turning the wilderness into a uh, into a garden the fact that there is food to to gather at all is a sign of the lord's uh, uh, the kind of transformation of Israel's circumstances. Even even within the wilderness, he makes them live as if they were in a garden, even in the midst of the wilderness. I just wanted to make one more comment about the Sabbath, uh, uh, kind of implicit in what, I, what we had already discussed. But um, you, you have these 40 years of, that's, that function as a kind of pedagogy for Israel. They learn that they can trust the Lord to provide extra food on the sixth day. And they learn that they can't, leave anything to the from day to day that if they, when they do that then uh it's uh it's corrupted it's it's rotted by the next day uh so they learn to depend on the lord for their daily bread and no more and they learn that the, uh, the and the sabbath keeping in relation to the manna is a 
an expression of their confidence that the Lord is going to give this extra provision. They go through this 40 years of pedagogy that's very direct and uh, miraculous. And then when they go into the land, the pattern of time is still there. They're supposed to, still supposed to keep the pattern of six days of work and a day of rest. The manna ceases as soon as they go into the land. So the their bread is now going to come up from the ground and it's going to be the product of their own toil. But the lesson of the wilderness stays with them or it's supposed to stay with them. Uh, and the lesson of the wilderness is that even when they go into the land and it looks like it's their work that's produced this abundance, they have to recognize that it's actually the Lord's, just as much the Lord's provision and the Lord's grace in the land as it is in the wilderness. So the manna provides a uh, a pedagogy that that stay, is supposed to stay with Israel th- throughout throughout our history. It's not just for the wilderness. It's something that's supposed to train them to look to the Lord for their daily bread, uh, even when they're in a position to to raise the bread for themselves to make to uh, uh, farm and to make the bread for themselves. And the character of the manna is interesting in that that regard that you can't accumulate it. Um, you can't gather more than you need um, and there's also a mysterious quality to it that it almost materializes um, the ground um, it's also something that it's very difficult to get a conceptual hold on it mm-hmm. the fact it's called manna what is it mm-hmm. those qualities of it what are your thoughts on that yeah um well, I think there's some of the descriptions seem to have some connection with what we were saying earlier with the uh, uh, with the Edenic connotations, the garden connotations. I think that also points to the it anticipates what the what the way the psalm describes the manna as the bread of angels. It's the bread of heaven. Uh, it's, that's the kind of language that Jesus uses of himself uh, in John six when he compares himself to the manna. So it, it, I think part of it would be this. Uh, mysterious quality uh, because it's it's not normal earth bread it's not the kind of bread or not the kind of grain that grows up from water and soil and sunlight it's bread that comes directly from heaven it seems to thwart the usual practices of human provision um, making us dependent making the israelites dependent upon god in a way that they would not have been had they been able to accumulate it and trade with it and other things like that, perhaps. Right. Yeah, and I, th- I think that's, I would see that as part of the pedagogy too, because there, I wouldn't I wouldn't use this as a proof text against having a pantry uh, with a week's provision of food in it, or, you know, keeping, storing things in a fridge. There's no, there's no prohibition of, once Israel enters the land, there's no provision, there's no prohibition of them saving up their goods for, uh, for a, uh, for against against uh, you know future bad harvests or uh, future famine, uh, but even so, the pedagogy of the wilderness is still with them, and they should recognize that uh, even even when they have uh, barns full of grain, that is still they're still depend uh, completely dependent on the Lord for everything that they have. Even those provisions are not things that they produce for themselves; they only produce them by the strength that the Lord gives them. Is there a particular significance to the character of bread that we can learn from this? Um, the 
book I was reading that discussed this um, talks about its Macho Pajot's um, language of creation. He talks about the way that bread needs to be materialized by bringing together fine grain and forming something out of that, whereas flesh is something that comes up from the ground, as it were, um, from beasts, and then is prepared in a different sort of way, whereas bread is far more something, a fine substance that needs to be um, concretized in a new way. Yeah. I found that a curious thought. I wasn't sure what to do with it. Yeah. Uh, and and is, the, is the point he's making a point about um, the contribution of uh, human creativity and skill? Uh, it, takes, it takes skill for... Uh, to raise an animal, a domesticated animal, but you can kill a, you can kill a wild deer and eat it, and you haven't put any kind of uh, energy or effort or thought into making the deer ready for food. But uh, bread making, yeah, requires uh, human intention and creativity and investigation, knowledge of the uh, components. What happens when you? put these ingredients together, what happens when you put these ingre- ingredients together, and then add yeast. There, There's a kind of chemistry to bread making that isn't there in, certainly not in hunting, and uh, is there in, in maybe a, a different in a different way in raising domesticated animals. And I, I guess I'm thinking in terms of Eucharistic applications of this, you, bread and wine would then be on a continuity of, bread is simpler and takes a shorter time than the making of wine. But it's it's still those two foodstuffs are in a, in a continuity that distinguishes them from animal meat. Uh, and again, because because they both of them are expressions of of cultural uh, achievement. Is that the kind of point that um, who did you say made the made the comment? Macho Pajo in mm. the language of creation. That's not primarily the point he oh. was making, but I think it does relate to that. His point was primarily that um, the Manner represents a sort of higher substance that is, whereas the quail and flesh need to be raised up, manner needs to be brought down into something. It's hmm. it's a different okay. sort of image. Okay. Um, the other thing that is interesting on that front is um, the significance of a culture and everything else to support bread making which is something you've mentioned in the past Mm -hmm. and i wonder on this front is there should we be reading the story of the manor in relationship to the story of the cutting off of the leaven is there a connection between these two stories of bread in close context to each other no no doubt there's a connection (laughs) uh and you seem to—I'm ha- not sure of it, so I thought I'd you ask see, you. You seem to have some inkling of what the connection might be. <laughs> I wish I did. <laughs> well, I wonder. I mean, the, my first thought is that you have—they're cut off from normal normal bread production for the forty years of the wilderness. It's always a puzzle to understand how the whole uh, Levitical system operated in the wilderness. Could you get semolina, fine grain? Could you get roasted grains to offer as tribute offerings while you're in the wilderness? Can you use manna to do that? Could you roast little bits of manna and that would that would count as a grain offering? You know, are they are they able to use uh, yeast or leaven in 
production of uh, manna bread. It would seem like it, it, the connection, the first connection I thought was thinking of that, that uh, the manna would represent a kind of 40-year gap in the, in the production of bread. Uh, that, that, that's institutionalized on an annual basis with the uh, week-long Feast of Unleavened Bread, but that you have that expanded, as it were, to a, uh, the complete wilderness experience. But I, I don't know if that, again, uh, the reason I'm, a reason not to be confident about that suggestion is that not, I'm not sure how the manna worked and whether, whether they were actually, you know, were they able to make leavened as well as unleavened bread out of it? Is that, was that possible with, uh, with the manna? I don't know if we can. Yes, I don't know if we can tell that. Interesting question. So, what uh, what do you think it's about certainly baking and boiling? Yeah, and boiling presumably the quail and baking the bread from the manna. Yeah. Uh, what do you think of the suggestion that this is a kind of large scale, kind of forty year period of unleavened bread? Once the Passover has been the original Passover sacrifice, they go into this kind of continuous mode of. It, but but that doesn't really work because the manna is in a sense they're uh, uh, they have forty years of no normal bread making at all of any sort it's neither uh, leavened nor unleavened in the normal senses so that doesn't really fit the unleavened bread scenario but but I, I mean it's, it does seem you bringing up the analogy does seem make it seem like the manna is a the period of manna is a kind of is a is a is a kind of cutting off. But uh, what is it cutting off? Is it is it to be seen as part of the part of the cutting off of the old leaven of Egypt? Is that the is that the large scale symbolism? We'll leave that to our listeners to resolve and get back to us on it. Um, <laughs> your your discussion of the kind of mysterious quality of the manna, I think, helps to enhance the way that Jesus talks about that uh, manna episode in John six. John six is a not only a bringing out the typology of manna, Jesus as the bread that comes from heaven, the true manna that comes from heaven, uh, the bread that comes that um, gives eternal life and not just the temporary life in the wilderness that Israel received. But you have this whole sequence of events that is um, Passover and Exodus-like uh, as um, in, the, in, the course of this, uh, in the course of this chapter. Uh, the Passover is ex- explicitly mentioned in verse 4. Uh, Jesus is not in Jerusalem for this Passover. He's out in the wilderness uh, uh, with his disciples in a multitude, and he feeds them. But the timing of it uh, suggests a kind of Passover scene, Passover feast. Uh, then you have the scene of Jesus crossing the crossing the water, an Exodus scene. And then he goes on the other side, pa- having passed through the water, uh, and there's this discussion of manna, and so you have the whole chapter is is giving you this sequence. It's not just an isolated discussion of the manna, um, and the uh, the fact that uh, the manna is such a has such an elusive quality would, would fit nicely with that with that uh, typology that Jesus Himself is the bread that comes from heaven, especially in John, where Jesus is an especially elusive figure. Uh, he's the one who's born of the Spirit, and he keeps slipping through everybody's fingers. And uh, people can't figure out where he came from. They're confused about his uh, his town of origin. They're confused about his uh, his destination. They don't know where he's coming from or where he's going. It has he's, it has this kind of elusive quality that uh, 
would fit with what you were saying about the manna. So Jesus here explicitly talks about the um, loaves and the fish as a sign and connects that with the manna later on and also with the the food that perish which perishes or the food which endures to everlasting life. Um, we've already had within John's Gospel the discussion with the woman at the well, which has very similar themes. Christ is also described as the the bread of God here. First of all, how would you relate these two events? And also, is the bread of God different from the bread of the angels? Talk about the sacrifices as the bread of God, um, the Levites offering the bread of their God. Is it a reference to that, or is it the bread of the angels um, associated with the bread of God, or is there some contrast being drawn in any way? Yeah, because the- you certainly have in verse thirty-two. There's a suggestion of. Did you finish? <laughs> Oh, just that there is a suggestion of a contrast see, between okay. the bread of the angels. It isn't the true bread from heaven. Christ is the true bread from heaven. Right, right, yeah. Yeah, I think, I think it, is, it is related to the Levitical uh, terminology of the bread of God. Um, Jesus is the bread of the true bread that comes down from heaven. But I think we can plug that same terminology into thinking about the cross as uh, sacrifice. The bread of God is not only the bread that God gives to his children, but the bread of God is also the bread that satisfies him. Uh, And so Jesus, in offering himself as the true bread, is the ultimately satisfying offering, the ultimately satisfying sacrifice. So you you get a, a culinary version of the satisfaction through the atonement, I guess. Um, a baking version, so I, I think that yeah, I think that's part of the background is you have the the Levitical Levitical idea. I hadn't I hadn't thought about the. Uh, I guess that uh, maybe I would just uh, put it in the category of of shadow and reality or type and antitype. Moses, the the Lord brought the bread in the wilderness. That's bread from heaven. That's bread from God, but that's just a shadow of the true source of life that is Jesus. And so uh, I think I'd, the contrast in verse 32 I'd take is uh, having that that kind of connotation. It's that you have a, a type of the bread. You know, Paul uses the language of type explicitly in 1 Corinthians 10 when he's talking about this episode, these episodes of the wilderness. And uh, so you have a type of the spiritual bread in the manna, and then you have the reality of the spiritual bread in Christ. What is the seal that is set upon the Son of Man by God the Father? <laughs> How come you ask all the questions? That's my that's my question. <laughs> that's my question to you. <laughs> I guess you, I, because you get there. I tend to ask the questions when I don't have the answers. Okay, I guess you get there first, and so you get to ask all the questions. Um, <laughs> um, I I think that's I think that's probably the Spirit, and that would be uh, based on association of. Uh, seal, seal in the spirit. In the beginning of Second Corinthians, you have some suggestions of the of a link there. I'm not sure exactly how that uh, a reference to the spirit would work in verse 27. 
that, that would be my uh, that would be my answer to the specific question. But how it fits into the logic of the passage, I'm not sure. Yeah, I suppose that would be something that would hark back to John's testimony concerning the baptism. Right. See, in my Bible, I've got a cross reference to uh, John three thirty three. I'm not sure this will help, but I'll I'll read a few verses around it. Verse 31, um, John is speaking. He who comes from above is above all. Uh, he who is of the earth is from the earth and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. What he has seen and heard of that he bears witness and no man receives his witness. He who has received his witness has his seal to this that God is true. For he whom God then has sent speaks the words of God, for he gives the spirit without measure. So I think the cross-reference was just linking the two uses of the of sphragis, the word seal. And I'd, I'd have to spend some time sorting through the pronouns there. I'm not sure, sure who's who in, in, that, in that few verses. Uh, who is he who has received his witness? Is that, is that John or is that... Anyway, I'd, I'd, have to, I'd have to look that more carefully to, to see how that works. But I think that, again, the... In very general way, if the Spirit is the reference to, if the seal is a reference to the Spirit in John 6, that would, at a very general level, it makes makes sense that Jesus is giving himself as the bread of heaven. Uh, he's identified as the one who can give himself as the bread of heaven by the Spirit that's on him. And it's by the means of the Spirit that he's going to give himself to his disciples. But I, that doesn't exactly fit the way the, 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 way the, the, way the words run. I have to... Pay more, uh, look at that more carefully. One way we could connect the. You have something else on John six. Yes, the, certainly within um, John three and also here in John six, there's a lot of emphasis upon the relationship between the ascension, coming ascension of Christ, and the fact that Christ has descended from heaven. Um, that Christ is not just someone who arose in history as other human beings do, but he has actually descended from on high and that he will go back from to the place from whence he came and that the ascension is among other things a proof that he has descended from heaven in the first place mm -hmm. right yeah and that that's a good segue to the epistle reading of in Ephesians 4 which is about the ascension but about the ascension uh Jesus ascends and then having ascended gives gifts to men. Uh, Paul quotes from a psalm uh, that describes the, he ascended on high, led a host of captives captive, and gave gifts to men. So at his ascension, at his enthronement, Jesus distributes gifts to his people. Uh, we've, we've looked at uh, parts of Ephesians before, and I uh, reiterate something that I said in an earlier podcast, but beginning of Ephesians 4, it's picking up on the end of chapter 2, Chapter 2 has described the breaking down of the dividing wall between Jew and Gentile and the formation of one new humanity. And then Paul, in chapter 3, describes his own role in the stewardship and administration and carrying out of that, the unveiling of that mystery of the union of Jews and Gentiles. And then in chapter 4, he repeats the opening to chapter 3, I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, entreat you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. And I, that calling refers back to the uh, vocation to be the one new humanity that goes that's at the end of chapter 2. So the specific exhortations at the beginning of chapter 2 are about the way of life that's required to 
preserve and live out the reality of the one new humanity, the undivided humanity, Jews and Gentiles knit together. And a lot of emphasis on uh, living in unity and love. The, the, you have got the sevenfold uh, unity of the church in verses 5 and 6. You have exhortations to humility and gentleness. Uh, verse 3, preserve the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. So you have... Um, uh, that's that's the logic of the uh, of Ephesians. You have this description of what Jesus has accomplished in the cross with regard to the church, and then an exhortation in chapter four that describes the um, the way of life that is consistent with that, the vocation that's consistent with the vocation with which they've been called. And the order that you have in verses nineteen to twenty-two, the reference to. The household of God, Jesus Christ, the chief cornerstone, and then the habitation of God in the Spirit. You have the reverse of that in verses 3 to 6 with the Spirit in the bond of peace, mm. and one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and then one God and Father of all, mm. and drawing back up in worship what has been brought down in Revelation. Yeah, so are you seeing uh, there's a chiastic frame around chapter 3? Just that Trinitarian reference, yeah, right. particularly. Yeah, right. So that 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 fits chapter four into the context of Ephesians, and then the the stress of the first part of Ephesians four is also on, as, as I said, the ascension of Jesus. But the ascension of Jesus, it's his exaltation. But the the what Paul's highlighting at this point is the distribution of gifts that follows on the ascension, and I think I think we have to read a Pentecost an implicit Pentecostal uh, motif here. Jesus ascends and he gives gifts to men. He gives gifts of people, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers. But those are all equipped by the Spirit. Those are all gifts of Jesus through the Spirit. So the, the, the dynamic is Jesus, uh, going back to the, to the discussions in John, and the Upper Room Discourse, Jesus ascends the Spirit comes down as his presence. Uh, Jesus ascends and he gives the gift, which is the Spirit, but that Spirit is a giver of gifts. And the, uh, the gifts that the Spirit gives are these uh, leaders in the church who uh, equip the saints. And that one gift of the Spirit represented in the many gifts of the Spirit also conscripts us into God's own giving process. It's one of the things that I found striking recently looking at 2 Corinthians 8 where Paul references the manner he who gathered much had nothing left over and he who gathered little has no lack, had no lack. And he uses that to refer to giving within the church. Mm -hmm. So what was originally provided more directly by God, that su sufficiency for the need of everyone and no excess, that's now provided by the giving within the church. And so that connection between the church's own giving and the gift of God is a greater participation in God's process of, of giving in provision for us. Yeah, and that, that fits with the, the way that um, uh, Paul describes the uh, building up of the body toward the end of the passage. As I'm reading the syntax of verse 16, this is a subordinate clause, but uh, it's the whole body that is the subject of this clause, from whom the whole body, 
Then it has a couple of other descriptors being fitted and held together by that which every joint supplies according to the power of each individual part. Those are descriptions of the whole body. The verb is causes the growth of the body. So if you leave out the intervening clauses, uh, verse 16 is saying the whole body causes the growth of the body. For, and, and the end of the verse is explicit, the building up of itself in love. Obviously, this is not the church building itself up completely independently of the work of the Spirit or the work of God. That's not what, obviously not what Paul is talking about. But it's, as you said, it's the participation of the church in its own upbuilding, its own edification, uh, its own uh, growing up into the head. Uh, that's a process that is the work of the Spirit, but it's the work of the Spirit who's um, catching up the saints in in that work. So we're all contributing to the upbuilding of the body. Each member of the body is contributing to the upbuilding of the body. And in some sense, you could say that this is just an extension of the sheer biology of the metaphor. You know, a bo- the body builds up the body. It has. We depend on external nourishment, air and food and water, uh, in order to uh, in order to maintain our bodies. But our bodies are self self-sustaining and self-growing you know uh, they the body builds up the body and paul's extending that to the to the church but as you said it's a it's quite a a stunning uh it's a stunning privilege to be sharing in that work it's not that jesus is building his church that's true and that's a wonderful thing i think it's several orders more wonderful to say that jesus builds his church by working through the church to build itself it's interesting to read these verses in conversation with the end of um, Ephesians 2, where you have a very similar set of language, very similar language, but it's used in a building metaphor. And here you have a body metaphor. Yeah. But both of them include elements of the other. Um, so you have the building growing together. That's not, a <laughs> building doesn't usually grow. Um, but the building of Ephesians 2 is a growing building, mm-hmm. and this is a building body. Yeah, right. Yeah, so, yeah, so the two, the, the two uh, if we want to call the metaphors, the two metaphors kind of overlap and interpenetrate with each other. Um, but I think one of, the, one of the things that that uh, points to is um, kind of a theology, point of theology proper. God is not um, cheap. He doesn't... He doesn't um, uh, grasp his privileges, as it were, as God, his powers as God. Uh, but he demonstrates his utter godness, his infinity, by sharing his powers, including the power to build up the body of Christ. You can say God's humility in, uh, in, uh, and his generosity in sharing his gifts. So there's an there's a important point of theology proper behind it. And I think that that help, that helps. One of the one of the cruxes of discussion in recent uh, decades has been about verses eleven and twelve. Jesus has given apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service and for the building up of the body of Christ. To the building up the body of Christ, and the question has been uh, partly a matter of uh, punctuation. Is verse twelve describing the work of those? Uh, leaders in the church are they the ones who equip the saints who perform the work of service who build up the body of Christ 
or as the punctuation of my NASB has it, that these leaders are given to equip the saints for the work of service. So the saints are the ones who are uh, the, to building up the body of Christ and doing the work of service, and the role of the leaders is not to do the work, but to equip the saints to do the work. But I th- if, we, if we look at the verses 11 and 12 in the light of what Paul's saying at the end of the, end of the section, where the body is building itself up, it's clear that Paul has in mind a body in which every saint is contributing to the to the building of the body and to the uh, growth of the body. He doesn't see that as, uh, as he's not reserving that to a kind of clerical class. <laughs> um, these gifts are essential to the health of the church. And Calvin uses the image of um, ligaments and um, tendons that are essential to the uh, structure of the body and uh uh, leaders in the church are as essential to the health of the body as uh, certain, those, those kind of uh, structural parts of the body. But uh, they aren't the only ones who are active in the body and building up the body. The whole body is involved in the building up of itself. It's interesting that Paul, clearly beneath all these verses, Pentecost is very clearly implicit in what he's talking about. But yet the event that is foregrounded at the beginning is the ascension um, how can it help us to understand the gifts of the Spirit by thinking of Pentecost in the light of the Ascension? Once again, you're asking the questions. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 you may have some other things in mind, but uh, one of the one of the obvious uh, points is the it's just the, the royal overtones of Pentecost, which we and the royal the royal work of the Spirit, the Spirit as the uh, as the uh, the inheritance of the high king that he shares out with uh, all the members of his royal household, and so the, the uh, that that gives a different that gives a uh, a different connotation to the work of the spirit. In part, that uh, more public connotation to the work of the spirit. The spirit's work is not just not just, although it is interior uh, work in my in my heart and my soul that's true but that's not all it is it's a it's a public work and and that's particularly emphasized here in the what Jesus is giving through the spirit are uh, leaders who are building up a visible institution that is the body of Christ or a visible body of people I don't, did you have other thoughts about the that connection yes the concept of headship is already one that mm. is in play in Ephesians at the end of chapter 1 you have Christ as gave him to be the head over all things to the church. The head, Christ's headship is primarily exercised in relationship to the principalities and powers and the mights and dominions and all these other forces within the world yeah. for the church. Right. But here the head is developed as a concept. So it's not just Christ as acting on behalf as of the church as the one that strengthens and empowers her, but also the head is the preeminent one into whom the rest of the body is to grow mm-hmm. and to be drawn up into his into him and that connection between head and body i think is a very significant one for what's taking place here that christ's royal victory christ's royal status is through the work of the spirit something that we are being made to participate in 
And that is achieved through the exercise of the gifts of the spirit that build us up so that we attain, attain to his full stature. Right, right. Yeah, so the, uh, Jesus is set as head over all authority and power, as you said at the end of at Ephesians 1. And so that's the that's an ascension theme. And then the spirit's work is to um, grow up the body into that head. Um, so you're uh, yeah, connecting the ascension to Pentecost again. Let me let me end with just one comment at going back to the beginning of the passage um, where Paul encourages the Ephesians to be uh, patient, forbearing to one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And then he goes into this description. I think I mentioned verses four and f- uh, 5 and 6 before, but it's 4 through 6 that has this list of the different aspects of the church's unity. Um, and uh, the, I think properly it's emphasized that uh, Paul is urging the Ephesians to guard a unity that the Spirit has produced and that is a reality in the church. And I think that's, that's a crucial part of understanding the unity of the church, that there's a givenness to it because there is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, and so on. There's a givenness to the unity. But Paul's exhortation to preserve the unity and the bond of peace um, suggests that we might disrupt the unity of the Spirit, that it's possible to offend the Spirit by our disunity. I'm, I'm put in mind of uh, Ephraim Radner's, what I find a, a pretty chilling thesis um, in the, the end of the church, that uh, because of our Precisely because of our disunity, we're threatened with uh, pneumatological deprivation, I think is Radner's phrase. Uh, the, spirit, uh, the, the spirit is, uh, um, he puts it pretty starkly, the spirit has abandoned the church or the spirit threatens to abandon the church that is uh, at war with itself. So I think we have to keep those two things together, that there's a, there's a givenness to the unity of the church, but that doesn't, for Paul, that doesn't mean complacency about the unity of the church. It doesn't mean because it's a given, we can just um, we don't have to pursue unity. We don't have to act in a way that um, that uh, uh, advances or enhances the unity of the church. Uh, Paul is saying, as usual, Paul is saying the opposite. Because X is true, therefore we should pursue X. It's not because it's the the logic is not. Because X, because we don't have X, we need to get X. It's be, precisely because something is true, we should pursue that. It's this, this indicative imperative kind of pattern. I think the same thing here. There's a givenness to the unity of the church. But given that givenness, we need to pursue the unity of the church and to preserve it. And that's not, that's not a given. We may very well violate the unity of the church. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.